It is well with my soul. Is it? Is it? If you don't think it is, or if you think it is, either category, I encourage you this week, go home and look up online or find a way to read the history behind that song. Do yourself this blessing. It will bless your soul. And you will understand the power behind those words. When you understand who, it is, who is it that wrote him, Horatio, Horatio Spafford, and under what circumstances. Do yourself some good and read up this week on the history of that song. John Flavel, the uh, well-known Puritan writer, once said, The Scripture teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. Friends, the way we live life and respond to life shows the real nature of what is inside of us. Nothing will show that more clearly and vividly and powerfully than the way we respond to suffering. This morning, I'd like for us to open the book of James as we uh, begin the sermon series. We really began it last week uh, by, by having an overview of the whole book, and uh, I still remember throughout the week the gasp I heard from some of you when I announced last week that we're going to read the whole letter, and we did, and some of you couldn't believe it. And, uh, and I, I was surprised and encouraged how many of you actually appreciated and how, how many of you appreciated having an opportunity to hear a whole book like the book of James read from cover to cover. Um, this morning, we are starting our more focused work through the book in chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 8. Lord willing, we will get to verse 8. Here's the word of the Lord for us in the book of James. If you... Uh, you are using a Bible providing the chair in front of you. This passage is found on page number 1011, 1011, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. If you don't have an ESV translation, you're welcome to just grab one of the pew Bibles uh, and, and take it home. It's yours to take. Here's the word of the Lord for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man 
unstable in all his ways. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you pray with me? Father, you have already blessed us with your presence, with your truth that we have sung. You have already blessed us with the truth that we have just read. Now, O oh Lord, would you bless us with your spirit to help us understand this truth and bless us with your spirit to apply this truth to our hearts. We need your spirit for this purpose. Some of us, most of us, all of us at some point in our lives have been the double-minded man. We want the stability that comes from that genuineness of faith. The stability that comes from your spirit as your truth is working in us to transform us. Bless us this way, we pray. In the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen. It's interesting to read the beginning of the book of James and read the end of the book of James. By the way, it's a good practice whenever you read the book of the Bible. Um, read the beginning and the end. Well, read it in entirety. Just read it in entirety. That's the first step. Just read it. Just read it. Um, don't start with Isaiah. Start with shorter books. Just read it like we did last week. And then the second thing is good to know, is good to do when you read the Bible, is um, try to understand the whole of the book by reading the beginning and the end and see if there's any commonality between the beginning and the end. And the book of James shows us there's something similar between the beginning and the end of the book. It's a theme of suffering, the theme of, of trials. James begins this letter by addressing Christians how they should respond to trials. Several times, and, uh, and there's specific examples where we see Christians um, going through trials in, in their life. In the book of James, we see poverty, people lacking resources, people not having enough to eat, to clothe themselves. Um, also, we see in chapter 2, the rich blaspheme the honorable name of, of Christ and oppress Christians, even dragging them to court. In chapter 5, the rich have condemned and murdered the righteous people. This is in the book of James. At the end of chapter 5, we see the theme of, of trials again, this time in the, in the end of chapter 5, with physical illness. Christians were experiencing and going through physical suffering. Is anyone among you sick? So we see this presence, this interest that the book of James actually has for equipping people, equipping believers, how to respond to suffering. And we, throughout the letter, we'll see James hitting uh, and giving examples and, and encouragements how to respond. Some of you this morning are going through some trials. There might be big trials. There might be small trials. Some of you may not be going through trials, but you know someone who does. How will you encourage them? How will you come alongside them? And some of us, and actually all of us, even if we're not going through trials right now, we will go through trials. We will. College students, you will go through trials. They may not be the suffering of, of physical pain that comes through aging. It might be the, the brokenness of a, of a relationship that is not going the way you want to. 
It might be the failed exams or, or changing a path of a career that it, you're no longer able to pursue as you once wished. There might be trials of various kinds. So it's not just about certain age groups or, or certain life situations. There's going to be trials. How do we respond to them? How do Christians respond to them? Friends, let me say to this, one of the most powerful testimonies that Christians can have in our world is to show others how to respond to suffering because of the hope we have in Christ. The way we suffer differently is an incredible, powerful testimony to the power of the gospel, to the power of the tra- that, that, that has transformed us. So how should we respond to suffering? Well, there's two big ways that we see in the verses that we read this morning. There's others in the book of James. We're only looking at two ways, two big ways this morning from the passage we read. And here's the first one. Respond with joy. Respond with joy. Look at verse 1. I'm sorry, look at verse um, 3. I'm sorry, verse 2. The first point, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of very, various kinds. This is one of the most counterintuitive teachings of Scripture. When we face trials, count it all joy? Really? Seriously? How can you do that? Well, let's look at what it means. Notice who should count it all joy. My brothers, James says, my brothers. Christians call each, other's, call each other brothers and sisters. Now, we don't do that these days as much as once it used to be the case. I'm, I'm trying to use that more often in our, in our parlance here at, at Park Hills, um, but it, it, I feel like I'm alone, so I need some help. But why do we consider each other brother and sister? Because we're a spiritual family. Why are we a spiritual family? Because we have been born into the same family. The same new birth that God has given us. As verse 17 later in the book, in the same chapter, says, God by His own will has brought us forth by the word of truth. Prior to this new birth, Christians were sinners with no ties to one another, except their sin. After the new birth, Christians are still sinners, but with the power of sin broken. And now with a new nature inside of us that gives us a desire to forsake sin and pursue godliness. And now it's not just me One person having that new nature, but other believers, other Christians have the same new nature. We actually have the same common nature, the new birth. And therefore, we're part of this new family. And therefore, we call each other brother and sister. They live out as a family. We live out as a family with other Christians, a spiritual family. And we call each other by this sweet name. And James uses this name. My brothers, count it all joy. He's showing warmth. He's showing family relations that exist between him and and the people he's addressing. 
who can count it all joy? The brothers and sisters, those who are part of God's family, those who have been regenerated by the, by the word of truth. This new reality that brings a new perspective on how Christians should live as brothers and sisters, this new reality also gives us a new perspective how Christians should respond to trials. Now, to our human nature, let's be honest and be truthful and realistic. To our human nature, trials bring frustration, sorrow, anger, bitterness, fears, anxieties, and the list goes on and on. James is not saying that such feelings should be put aside. What James is saying is that in the midst of such human responses that we naturally have, in the midst of such reactions that we naturally have, there is another reaction we can't have and we should have. It has nothing to do with the rest of them. It's the reaction of joy. Count it all joy. Now, let me make sure we understand what it means to count it all joy. Let me say what it does not mean. It does not mean that the only thing you should feel is joy. As if the only exclusive reaction to trials you should have is joy. As if there should be no more room for some of that sorrow or grieving or, or pain. Some Christians might feel that guilt, that if they feel sorrow or pain or frustration in the midst of, 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 of trials, that somehow that is necessarily sinful. It could be sinful, but it's not necessarily sinful. I want to just make it clear that when he says count it all joy, he's not meaning, he doesn't say you should only experience joy. All joy refers to, or another way to understand that phrase would be, Count it complete joy, or genuine joy, or full joy, as opposed to superficial joy, as opposed to just putting on a face of joyfulness, when in reality, there is no joy in the heart. Count it all joy means count it a complete joy. And yes, that joy will be mixed with feelings of grieving and sorrow and pain. But count it all joy. I want to emphasize that to make sure that you don't get the wrong conclusion that somehow the only Christian response to suffering and trials is joy. It's not. It's legitimate to grieve. Uh, one, of the, one of the professors at Westminster Seminary wrote an article, um, What Should Miserable Christians Sing? Purposefully this morning, when we designed the, the set of songs we would sing this morning, we intentionally chose songs that actually had more often or more present the theme of, of suffering. And so it, it, it ended up being a little, perhaps a little more sober. We intentionally wanted to do that because it's appropriate for Christians that go through suffering and trials to come to church and not feel the pressure of putting on sort of a superficial, joyful face that everything is well when it's not. It's appropriate to grieve. It's appropriate to suffer. So I want to make sure that when we get to James, to this chapter, we don't sort of 
force on you a, a sort of artificial joy on your face. No, count it all joy. Count it complete, deep, genuine joy. How can Christians do that in the midst of suffering? And more so, how can Christians hold on to that as well as hold on and experience the grieving and the pain at the same time? Well, let's look at verse 3. How Christians can count in joy when they go through trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Did you hear how James defined trials? Called them the testing of our faith. In other words, trials are not simply accidents. Why is this happening to me? Trials are not purposeless. God has a purpose for our trials. And it, not may, it may not be to teach us a lesson. Like, what is God trying to teach me? Sometimes God does leave us trials to teach us specific lessons. But there are other times when it's not so much that God wants to teach us a specific lesson as much as trials are a testing of our faith. That's, a, that's what they are, a testing of faith. Oh, friends, if we knew... If we knew this well, every time we go through a trial, perhaps we would not ask the question why that often. Whether trials are big, like a life-threatening disease, or a disease that is incurable, and you may have to bear it for the rest of your life, or the loss of a spouse, or the loss of a dear person, or whether trials are small, like the grief you might get at work from your boss or from a very hard professor or class that you're barely able to make it through or with co-workers or things are just not working out the way you want it to or perhaps some are struggling with with resources to pay the bills friends realize that whether your trials are big or small James calls them the testing of faith you say, why is God letting me go through this? It's a testing of faith. Now, some of you say, I don't like tests. Who likes tests? I get it. They're not pleasant. But you know what James says? They're beneficial. They're beneficial. I agree, we don't like to be tested. Well, let me ask you, Friends, would you want to get on a plane that was never tested and inspected? Would you get on that plane? Would you go to a doctor whose medical training had no exams and no way of figuring out if he actually knows his stuff or not? Would you go to such a professional who is not tested for his credentials? I understand when we take the test, it's not fun. It's not pleasant. But it's beneficial. It's beneficial for us. It's beneficial for others. But notice something about the... Well, let, me, let, me, let me say this. If you would not get on a plane that was never tested or inspected, if you not go to a doctor that was never tested, why would you hold on to a faith that is never tested? Why would you want to have a faith that is not actually tested? 
But notice that this test of faith is not so much about passing or failing. The, the test of faith here, at least for the book of James, is not to get a good grade or a poor grade. It's actually, look at verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Does all testing of faith produce steadfastness? And the answer is no. When we don't have the right perspective on trials or when our faith is superficial, tests will crush us. Trials can move us to disobedience and to grumbling and to rebellion and to even turning our backs against the Lord, at least for a season, if not forever. Remember Moses, when he came to the Israelites, God told him to go and get the people out of Egypt, and God, Moses comes to them and tells them of God's plans, and they're excited. They're really excited until Moses goes to, the first, his, to his first visit to Pharaoh to tell him, and Pharaoh says, oh, really? Well, I'll give you guys more work to do, and you have to do the same quota of work, but without getting the straws. So the people, when they hear that they actually, their work became worse, we are told in, in the book of Exodus that uh, they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And if you keep on following the story of the Israelites in Egypt, when they finally did get out of Egypt, and they went through the Red Sea, and God did all those miraculous works with them, and now they're, pro they're going towards a promised land. They're going to, towards Canaan. But they're lacking food. They're lacking water. And what do they do? They grumble. They grumble not only against God. They grumble against Moses. Not only that, they wish they would go back. Wow. Wow. And Moses tells the second generation of the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, And you shall remember, says Moses, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. These 40 years in the wilderness, God was there to lead you. And yet, you grumbled against Him. And he says, He led you in the wilderness that He might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Did the Israelites respond well to those tests of faith? No, they didn't. Even though they have seen perhaps the greatest miracles of the Old Testament of any generation, and yet they, their faith, proved to be untrue superficial, lacking. Why not? Because they did not really believe the Word of God. They went along with what God said as long as God provided for them. They went along with what God said as long as God did not interfere with their desires. But when their desires were messed up, when the trials came and their desires proved lacking. They showed they did not really believe in what God said. They were more controlled by what they wanted. So they became angry, bitter, rebellious against the Lord and against the leader 
that the Lord had set over them. Friends, the point of all this is to show not all trials work steadfastness. In some people, trials work a devastating result. If the faith is not genuine, the test of faith will utterly, utterly fail. But for true Christians who have genuine faith, they have something to hold on to. And here's what they have, on, what, here's what they, have they can hold on to. That they know that trials are tests of faith that produce something good in us. They produce steadfastness. The test of faith is not simply for the sake of seeing if the, if the faith is genuine, but for the sake of refining, of strengthening, of building in us endurance. The testing of our faith is actually there to refine us. And this refining is a process. It's not so much like, oh, I passed my steadfastness uh, test. I'm now moving on to other things. No. James says, and let steadfastness do its full work. The testing of the faith is a process. It's not a one-time experience. But I want to make sure that as we think of steadfastness, we don't, we don't misunderstand this word. This word means persevering under pressure. Persevering under pressure. Just as physical muscles grow when we begin working out, just as we develop physical endurance when we begin exercising, not just once or twice, but over a period of a longer time. In a similar way, in our spiritual lives, endurance grows when faith is tested by trials. But it doesn't stop with steadfastness. It doesn't stop with this endurance. Steadfastness or endurance is not the end goal of our testing. No, dear friends, the end goal of our testing is in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfection here doesn't mean to be without sin or to be flawless. It means becoming mature, fully grown, fully developed. To be complete is defined by James as lacking in nothing. Can you imagine your life as lacking in nothing? Not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. Can you imagine if every part of our spiritual lives would be fully developed so we would respond in a mature way in every circumstance? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what our churches would be like? If every member of our, of our congregation would lack nothing in all their spiritual lives. Wow. Well, let me say this. We're not there. None of us are there. I'm not there. And you're not there. Not yet. But we're all going in that direction. The testing of our faith is part of the divine process to mature us as Christians, to grow us in trusting God with everything, even when He takes things from us. So often the testing, the trials in our lives 
are because God takes away things. We're no longer able to have the things we once used to have, right? Here's something ironic. As God takes away things from us, as God is taking us to trials and various difficulties, that process actually makes us complete. It's a taking away that actually is a process by which God makes us complete. Only God in His providence can work that out. But realize that for James, the primary focus of testing of our faith is to purify our faith and to make it stronger by giving us opportunities to put it under pressure. Think of it this way. When you go to trial, through a trial, think of it, I'm going to the gym to work hard. I'm going to be under pressure, but I know it's a test of faith. I'm holding on, and I'm not just holding on. I'm actually joyful. I'm going to count it all joy, not because of the trial, but because of what the trial produces in me. It produces steadfastness. It builds endurance, and that is, is a means of actually growing me to becoming complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. You may ask, does this really work? Is it true that the testing of faith produces something good in us? I mean, I know theoretically, but is it really true? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, the passage we read earlier, verses 6 and 7. After Peter reminds them of their salvation, he says to them, and, and the people in, in 1 Peter were going through trials and difficulties, in this salvation you rejoice, though now for a while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, here's why, they were grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, trials give us grief, no doubt. But can you still count it all joy? James says, yes, because of what it produces in us. If we have the right perspective, we should rejoice that trials are God's path to grow us in our faith and maturity. But if you have no longer or you have no desire for maturity, for spiritual growth, friends, it will be almost impossible for you to find joy. If you, if you don't delight in the idea of growing spiritually and wanting to, to move on closer and closer to that state of being perfect and, and, and mature, if you don't find delight in that, Apart from trials, you will not find delight in that with trials. Let me say that again. If you don't delight in the end product of growing into maturity and completion spiritually, if you don't delight in that without trials, you will not delight in that with trials. Some may suffer and go through afflictions, and they think it's a failure of their faith. Or some may go through afflictions and suffering, and they say it's the opposite of what they deserve. From a biblical perspective, suffering and trials are divine works aimed at strengthening us. I love what Robert um, Layton said, affliction is a diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. 
Affliction is a diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. So how can Christians respond to trial? With joy, we know that trials are tests of faith. We know that the testing of faith actually produces something good, a divine work in us, produces that fastness, endurance, strength. We know that the ultimate goal of our testing of faith is that we become complete, mature, and lacking in nothing. Here's the second way in which we respond to trials. This was point one, respond, respond with joy. And we looked at what, how can you respond with joy. Here's the second way to respond in trials. Respond with asking in faith. Respond with asking in faith. Starting with the next verse, verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom. James is not moving to a new subject here. The whole pursuit of spiritual maturity is closely connected not only with trials, but with a need for divine wisdom. Actually, you may see how trials are God's means of maturing us by understanding God's wisdom. And we need God's wisdom to understand how God matures us through trials. So what should you do if you lack wisdom? Say, I don't get it. I don't get it how God uses trials to mature us. You might be lacking the wisdom to understand that. Here's what you should do. Ask God to give you that wisdom. Now let me say something about the wisdom of God in working through suffering, in working something good through suffering. You might say, I don't understand. I don't understand this wisdom of God. How could he, in his wisdom, use something that's bad and, and suffering and pain to bring something good. I don't understand that, and I don't like that. We have to go back to the cross. The greatest good that God has done to this universe after the fall was to cause the greatest suffering and injustice. To his own son. So that through that suffering and injustice, the greatest good might come about. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who was truly perfect, Flawless, sinless, and yet suffered at the hands of sinners, scorned, abused, ridiculed, spit upon, and eventually killed, crucified. Through that act, God brought to us the greatest good. And for to be a believer, a Christian trusts in that, believes that, grasps that truth and follows it. Well, friend, if you're not a believer this morning, you're not a Christian, or you think you might be a Christian, but you've never understood this, this mystery of the gospel that actually God used the greatest pain and suffering to bring the greatest good so that you and I, sinners, the rebellious sinners, might be ransomed, might be restored and, and transformed and rescued and be restored back to God. If you don't understand that, friend, I call upon you today. Believe this news that God has sent Christ to suffer for our sins, for your sins, so that 
all those who respond in faith and repentance and turn to God, turn their lives to follow this God and entrust their lives to, into the hands of this God, they might be reconciled with God and receive the greatest gift, eternal life. If you don't know that, I call on you today. I encourage you, respond to Him, repent and believe so you may benefit of this great, great, greatest gift of God. I'd love to talk to you more at the end of the service. You'd like to know more about this. How is it that God used the greatest injustice and suffering to bring the greatest good? But friends, for those of us who have agreed and have accepted that truth and have responded to that truth, here's the point. You're able to believe that, right? Then trust and believe that God still today in your own life can still use pain and suffering to work something good for His glory. Use the cross. Go back to the cross to understand how God in His wisdom is able to do that. And if you're still lacking that wisdom, ask God to give it to you. Ask God to help you understand it. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now again, the call for wisdom here is not simply ask God to make you wise in the eyes of this world. No, 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 no. This is not the kind of wisdom that we ask for our kids so they could be smart kids and go to Ivy League schools. That's not the kind of wisdom that we are called upon in the book of James to ask of God. The asking of this wisdom is closely tied in this text with the understanding of how trials are God's means of maturing us. Also, wisdom is tied with desiring to be complete and mature. It's that wisdom that helps us to grow in godliness. Ask for that wisdom. If you're a Christian and have no desire for spiritual growth, friend, you are flirting with a very foolish thinking. If you're a Christian and you have no desire or very little desire for spiritual growth, I want to encourage you, I want to warn you this morning, you are flirting with a very foolish thinking. You lack the wisdom to understand what the Christian life is all about and what James is speaking here uh, about the whole life of a faith, of genuine faith. That's why James brings this up so early in the letter. And he will come, ba come back to the theme of wisdom several times in this letter. So how should we ask God for this kind of wisdom that leads us, propels us for spiritual completion and spiritual maturity? Here's how you should ask. Ask in faith. Okay. What does that mean? But here's what it does not mean. It doesn't mean ask with confidence. Or um, ask by simply believing. For James, that's not enough. For this passage, that's not enough. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. But who's a doubter? How do you know you're a doubter or you're doubting? Is a doubter someone like Thomas the doubter who doubted that Jesus' resurrection was real until he touched his body with his hand? No, that's not the doubter James is speaking about. If you understand who the doubter is or how James speaks about the doubter, look at verse 8. James says about this person, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The phrase double-minded suggests a, pay, a person who has two souls or a divided soul, a person whose heart is still divided. There's no singleness of heart in this person. He's seeking God. Yes, he's seeking God for the things he wants. But then he goes back to pursue worldly wisdom. Yes, this person might ask from God for some things, such as wisdom, but then he goes on and he still follows his own ways. 
intentionally. The phrase unstable means that this person is wavering between God and his own ways. And it shows up not only in this, in this prayer, his instability shows up not only in the fact that he asks in an unstable way, but his instableness is in all his ways. Did you notice what it says? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Later in the book of James, um, he will tell us about the God, wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. He says in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. For, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In other words, some people may ask for wisdom from God, but they don't really want to give up their jealousies. They really don't want to give up their bitterness. It actually makes them feel good to remain bitter at something. They feel in control. They're not going to let it go. Or their selfish ambitions. So you may want with half a mouth and say, Lord, give me your wisdom. But then with the other half a mouth, you are actually not willing to pursue and receive the wisdom of God because you're still holding on with a, with a closed fist to your own wisdom and your own ways. You are an unstable and double-minded person. You want to have the best of both worlds, the wisdom of God and also the wisdom of your ways. This attitude of double-mindedness affects all of life. This is a doubter in this text. It's not so much that he keeps, uh, that he knows that he doubts. Actually, the doubter may not even know he's a doubter. It's his double-mindedness and instability that proves that he actually does not believe the Word of God fully. His flirt with doing things with, in his own way, even while he's asking God for wisdom, it's actually an evidence that he actually doesn't really want God's way fully. The doubter is the one who starts asking, but then he gives up. He asks for a while, but he's not persistent because he's not really sure if it's worth it. Notice the harsh words James has against this doubter. Verse 6, like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This is not a pretty picture. It's the opposite of soundness, of completion, of lacking nothing. Friends, some of us this morning, some of you this morning, might be like the wave of the sea. And you don't even know it. Your faith is based on your emotions and your feelings. If you like what God says, and if it fits you, you go with Him. But when it doesn't, when you don't like it, you choose your ways intentionally. Yes, you may ask of God, and you think you ask in faith because you think you ask with confidence, but in reality, you ask with a half heart, and you like being on the fence when it comes to spiritual things. You lack the singleness of heart, and therefore your life is more like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, and you don't even know it. James gives a second heart point about this doubter. Look at verse 7. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Did you hear that? Oh, did you hear that? This kind of doubter, not the one who has little faith, but the one who has a double-mindedness, a double, a divided heart. This, faith, this man, the faith of that, this double-minded person is empty. It can't produce anything. The Lord will not answer such prayers coming out of half-heartedness. James is not speaking to people who are, who are struggling with their faith in a genuine way. It's small faith, but it's genuine, and it's coming from a heart that is singly, single-heartedly devoted to the Lord. It's not the smallness or littleness of faith that James warns about. Instead, he warns about the double-mindedness of the doubter. Friends, some of you this morning feel like you have not grown much in your Christian life for the last few years, perhaps last few decades. I don't know if there's anyone like that in our congregation or, or among us this morning. But ask yourself if you have not been growing for the last season of your life, even though you may have asked God to help you grow, is it possible, is it possible that you may have asked God to help you grow spiritually, but you're still a doubter because you're still intentionally wanting to walk on the fence of the spiritual life. Your asking is not prompted by faith. Your asking is prompted simply by wishful desires, and wishful desires are not faith. So asking in faith is not just about how big your faith is, but whether you ask with a faith that comes from an undivided heart. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the single-heartedness of your heart that, that is produced by genuine faith. So how does genuine faith respond to trials? Respond with joy. And respond by asking in faith. What should you do to help, it, to help you in this process? If you want more help with this, can I encourage you two in two ways? Read the Scriptures. Especially when you go through suffering, read large sections of Scripture. And look at how often the people of God were assigned the path of suffering. And learn from them how to trust in the Lord and how to ask of the Lord in the midst of suffering. Immerse yourself in the Scriptures. Let me give you a second encouragement, and this might take you by surprise. Read the Puritans. Someone said, the Puritans show us how God's rod of affliction is His means to write Christ's image more fully upon us so that we may be partakers of His righteousness and holiness. If you would learn how to handle your trials in a truly Christian way, read Thomas ba Boston, The Crook in the Lot. The sovereignty of, and wisdom of God displayed in the afflictions of men. And I will leave you with this quote that Boston said in the book. Everyone knows what is most pleasant to him. But God alone knows what is most profitable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of trials and difficulties, you work a divine purpose. A purpose which at first may not be apparent to us, but we believe your truth that says that you work steadfastness. We want to be a people who believe your word that says that steadfastness must do its full work 
so that we might be complete and perfect, lacking in nothing. Oh, Lord, we pray, would you teach us today that trials of various kinds are your means of doing spiritual good in our lives. Help us to cling to you. Help us to believe you. And help us when we go through trials, to go through them, counting it all joy, knowing that you are doing a divine work in us. Pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.